So as we've been going through Genesis, we've been seeing how God made the world. We've been seeing how God shaped the world. But have you ever wondered why God allowed sin into the world? That's what we saw happening at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis just sort of presents it as fact. But it doesn't give us a, a motivation on God's side. For why, why is he doing it? Why is there all this pain and hurt in the world? Well, this evening we're going to see a lot of pain and hurt as we look into the story of Noah, the beginning part. Millions will die just after the end of our, our passage. And as we see that, we're going to be discovering something about God that we didn't know. Something that we couldn't have known in the garden. God is a saviour. God is a saviour. That's part of who he is. He rescues people. And really, in the flood here this evening, we're going to see God's first great saving act. And in that, we're going to see the seeds of all future acts of salvation. God is revealing himself to the world as a judge. We're going to see that. But he's also revealing himself as a saviour, the saviour of the world. And those are things that we wouldn't know without sin in the world. So that's not the full answer, but it starts us to see what we'll be exploring this evening. The very character of God. And the first thing we see is a clear warning. A clear warning. That's for chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. We just had them read, so I won't read them to you again. But this is probably the most disputed section in the whole book of Genesis. Uh, certainly in terms of what it actually means, what it's actually saying. Because you've got a few questions really, haven't you, in the verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. Who are the sons of God that it's talking about there? Who are the Nephilim and how can they be there before the flood and after the flood as well, if the flood is this universal global flood? And what's this deal about 120 years? What's that talking about? Well, let's look at those questions to sort of help us tease out really what this section is all about. Who are the sons of God that it's talking about who come down to the daughters of men? Well, there are two big ideas that you get really for, for uh, for the identity of these characters, the sons of God. They could be angelic beings. So sometimes in the Bible, angels are described as sons of God, like in the book of Job. The other option is that it could be Seth's line. So if you remember last time in chapter 5, we looked at the descendants of Seth, the godly line that was characterised by Enoch uh, and those other great men. And I think in the context of Genesis, it's more likely to be the line of Seth, since that's what's immediately come before. Um, we haven't really had the idea of angels or angelic beings yet in the book of Genesis. So a little bit strange to sort of just drop this in there. So it's most likely to be um, the, the uh, children of Seth, the, the line of, of Adam, the, the, the carrying on of that line. If you remember last time, we were told that Seth was in Adam's image and that Adam was in God's image. So this idea of them being sons of God would seem to make sense as it goes down the line. There's also other clues that it might be that. I mean, they get married, don't they? Did you notice that? Uh, we have to skip over this. So, um, verse 2. The sons of God thought the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So, there are lots of stories in the ancient world of gods coming down, or angelic beings coming down and having children with women. But we don't hear about them coming down and getting married, and settling down, and, you know, getting a mortgage, or whatever they used to do in those days. But it seems here that they, they do more than just have children. They actually get married and, and have relationships. So in context, it's likely to be the godly line of Seth having children with the godless line of Cain. 
It's a sort of intermingling of the godly and the godless line. So that's really what it's talking about here with the sons of God from the context of what we're seeing. So what about Nephilim? How do they fit in? And how can they be there before and after the flood? Well, the Nephilim, if you read it, are the children of these unions. They're the ones that, that come out of these marriages. And their name in Hebrew uh, is Nephilim. That's <laughs> where we get the name. They didn't know quite how to translate it, so they've just written it down for us. It's a bit like the word baptism uh, and baptize. That's a Greek word, baptizo, and it literally means to dunk. Uh, but it seemed a bit strange to translate it as dunk or dip. So they kept the word baptize. Here, here they've kept the word Nephilim. And the word is really related to the idea of being fallen. Uh, some idea of falling down. And in older translations, it's generally translated giants. So even in uh, our translation, the ESV, there's a footnote saying, or giants. Now, I think what we get here really is what it, what it seems to say there, that we're actually talking about giants. They're mentioned in Numbers 13 uh, as the sons of Anak, They're when they reappear after the flood. And it's said that when they saw them, um, the people were as grasshoppers in comparison, grasshoppers in their sight. And their descendants went to live in Gath, uh, which is where Goliath, the giant, came from. So it really seems to be the idea of, of some sort of large beings, if you like, large people, uh, giants. So if that's what the word means, if that's what we're talking about here, well, all it's really saying is that there were giants before the flood and there were giants after the flood. Uh, if it were a mingling of lines, that would fit as well, wouldn't it? The, the genetic information would be sort of stowed away uh, in, in Noah and his family. Let me explain what I mean by that. Have you ever had a situation where you know two people with black hair and they've had a ginger child? And you thought, oh, what's, what's going on there? Two people with black hair with a ginger child. But the way genes work is you can have them in your DNA, but until you get a certain combination, you don't see them. So you can have, I could have, I think I do have ginger DNA. I have one ginger sort of hair that grows out of my, my stubble um, and I have ginger ancestors um, so I could potentially have had a ginger child if I've got the genetic information and just like it here they, they had the possibility of having giant children because the lines uh, had intermingled so the feeling really is probably just talking about tall people that's really all it all it's saying so what is the 120 years about so do, do you see that down in uh, verse 3 then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now again, we've got two options with that. It could be the lifespan of humans being limited to a hundred and twenty years. Or it could be a hundred and twenty year warning before the flood. The idea of the lifespan of human beings being limited to twenty years, it sounds quite convincing, doesn't it? You know, lifespans aren't as long as they were uh, back in the chapters that we've just read. It sounds convincing, except that it doesn't happen. Actually, if you read the account, if you carry on in Genesis, they continue to live long lives. Certainly not as long as the people before the flood, but they live way beyond 120. So Shem lives to 600 years old and is still around when Abraham gets there. Abraham lives to 175, Isaac to 180, Jacob to 147. The only really significant person in Genesis that doesn't live beyond 120 is Joseph who lives to 110. So it'd be strange if it was saying, right, people are only going to live 120 years now, and then all the rest of the characters in the book of Genesis, apart from Joseph, live beyond that. So it'd be a little bit strange to have that as uh, as your thing. It's true that the ages do go down, but not in such a neat way. 
Uh, on top of that, there are also people who live beyond 120 now. So it hasn't even settled down to this day. So I think the second option is better. The 120 years warning before the flood. It's as though God is saying, right, okay, in 120 years, time's up. And especially since what follows is a giant flood where God wipes out most of mankind. That would seem again to fit with the context. So God here is giving them a clear warning of what is to come. We know that he did this because he did it through Enoch, uh, as we read in the New Testament. And God often warns all the way through the Bible of impending judgment. So what we have here is a warning to mankind. 120 years to book your ideas up. But the problem is that it's very unlikely to happen. Look at God's verdict on mankind. Have a look at verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's God's verdict on mankind at this point. Their thoughts are only evil. Just stop and take that in for a second. Exclusively evil is what he's saying. How can that be? How can our thoughts be exclusively evil? Only evil. Well, it's to do with the fact of our godlessness. That's what evil really is, isn't it? Our selfishness. Before we even think about our actions, we need to think about our motives. What we do really is all tainted by sin, isn't it? Nothing that we do in and of itself is good anymore. Not even the thoughts of our head. We, we put ourselves in the centre. So think about it. Why do people give to poor uh, people? Why do you, you know, uh, you've had a few situations in Otley, haven't we, the people near Sainsbury's. Why do people give them cash? Well, I'm sure part of it is trying to help the poor. And, and that's a very noble and good thing to do. But I bet that in our, if we know our hearts of hearts, there's other bits thinking, well, has anyone seen me give that? Or maybe I could feel good about myself uh, by giving some money to poor people. Or maybe it's to alleviate my guilt that I don't do it more often. Actually, our motives are very, very mixed up, even in the good things that we do. So here it's saying, actually, everything is tainted by sin. All our thoughts are tainted by sin. And it's continually. Do you see that there? Only evil continually, all the time. Every thought that they have. It's saying that mankind is comprehensively evil. Nobody is thinking as they should be. They should be thinking with God in the centre of everything. But instead, self, our selfish ways, just get in the way. Nobody is acting as they should do. It's a world, if you like, with billions of people or millions of people. We don't know exactly how many were around. But they've each got their own little throne, their own little crown. And they're expecting everybody else to do their bidding. You do what I say, I'm king. Well, a world like that is a world of conflict, isn't it? As people refuse to do what you say because they've got their own little crown on. It's a world of exploitation as we try and get other people to do what we want. In other words, it's a world of sin. And God is grieved that he's even made it. Do you, read, do you remember reading that, seeing that there? And God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God's sad that he made the world. Now, he's not saying that God made a mistake, because God doesn't make mistakes. He's not saying that he's repenting, as we understand that word, though it does use that word. 
in more plain language, it's basically saying that all this evil, all this pain, all this suffering, all this that's going on, makes God incredibly sad. He's not unaffected by the evil in the world. Actually, he's incredibly sad about it. It grieves him to his heart to see what's happening. And more than that, it makes him angry. And he's going to judge, isn't he? He said he will blot out the world. And you can see why, can't you? When you look at what the world is like here as it's presented. God is actually putting it right, if you like, by blotting out the world. But not everyone. Do you notice one person finds favour, verse 8? But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we're going to find out about him in our second heading. Another Enoch or another Adam. We're presented here with the character of Noah. We've already met him briefly in chapter 5. And if you remember, it was prophesied that he would be the one to bring rest, as even his name means rest. And Noah here is portrayed as another Enoch, like Enoch in chapter 5. Do you remember Enoch? Uh, So uh, chapter 5, verse 22, Enoch walked with God uh, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and then down at 24. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And then here we meet that phrase again, don't we, in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, it's used of Enoch, like we say in chapter 5. And it's used of Noah in chapter 6. But it's used nowhere else in the whole Bible. No one else is described as having walked with God. And it's a very familiar phrase to us, isn't it? We talk about our walk with God and and those sorts of things. And the New Testament does use the language of a walk. But people aren't said to be walking with God. So it's a really familiar phrase, but we miss the fact that actually it's only used of these two people and they're right next to each other in the Bible. It's supposed to be making a sort of, join a link between them. There's a close connection between him and his great-grandfather. They share this relationship with God in common. And we're told, aren't we, that he found favour with God and was righteous. Now, do you see there in, in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But we've already been told in verse 8 that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And that order is quite crucial, really, as we uh, look at this. But it's overlooked. The order there is crucial. It does not say that Noah was righteous and therefore found favour with God. If anything, the emphasis is the other way round. Noah found favour with God and therefore was righteous. God made him righteous because he found favour with God. So many of us, when we come to the story of Noah, almost seem to suspend our systematic theology, don't we? Now, it's not good to just impose a theology on a passage. Whatever we read uh, should be what we say, shouldn't it? Uh, It shouldn't be that we just already have the answers and then impose them on the passage, however good our system is. But actually, we, we often suspend our systematic theology. We suspend what we learn from the rest of the Bible. Because it's so often taught like this, isn't it? Everyone was bad, except Noah, who was good, so God saved him. That's basically what, what we... If you get kids' Bibles, um, generally that is the story that you get. I think I've told you before, I have my Noah test. Look at the story of Noah to work out whether it's a good Bible. But if that's what the story really is, it's, you know, everyone is bad except Noah who is good so God saved him, then the application is be good and God will save you. That's what we're actually teaching, isn't it? 
That doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible story. Salvation is always by grace, always by grace. God's unmerited favour. So God does bestow his favour on Noah, but it's unmerited. And then that produces a life where he produces righteousness in his life. It produces a life that's blameless in his generation. And it's the same for us. A righteous life isn't the cause of us finding favour with God. But it's the result of us finding favour with God. The two always come together. But the order is absolutely crucial. So he found favour with God and therefore was righteous. So he's presented as another Enoch, a righteous man who, who walks with God. But he's also presented as a second Adam. Again, there are lots of similarities here with what's gone before. Uh, there are lots of similarities, really, to, to Genesis 1 and 2. I don't know if you, you realise that as we're reading, reading through. The reference to all the animals that it talks about, the ones that are creeping on the earth and the birds that are flying in the sky. The repeated references to them being male and female. The repeated reference to the earth, the land, the ground, all that's Adama. Uh, the idea of the, the earth. You've got the breath of life is mentioned that will uh, go out, if you like, when the flood comes. And you have the water that covers the earth. Well, do you remember back in Genesis 1, verse uh, 1 and 2? It's one of the most famous verses, but we miss it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Actually, the whole world was covered in water, if you like, even back in in Genesis 1, verse 1. Noah has three sons, like Adam. And in the next chapter, we'll see that the flood will come in seven days. Why the reference to seven days? If you think that I'm just sort of making too much of this, think of the story of Jacob. Or think of the story of Joseph. Same book. Can you think of any of those sorts of references that you get in those stories? About the animals, about the seven days, about the male and female, the breath of life. You don't get them. The problem is that we're so familiar with these stories that we sort of miss the similarities and how different they are to all the rest of the book of Genesis. We're supposed to compare them, we're supposed to put them together. And he's being presented as a second Adam, we'll see that more as we go through uh, the story. But the difference between him and Adam is found in verse 22. Let's have a look down at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So if he's being portrayed as a second Adam, well, he's different in the way that he obeys the Lord. He actually does what God says. So this is starting to look really promising, isn't it? Could could Noah be another Adam? Could he be a new founder of a, a human race? Could he be the serpent crusher that we've been looking for, who will crush the serpent's head? Will this really lead to a reversal of the curse? I mean, God is going to be starting from scratch, isn't he? We see a decreation, really, in the flood. Back to the chaotic waters of Genesis 1, verse 2. And decreation will lead to a new creation. Again, we don't think of that the language is, is, is in that way, do we? But more of that in future weeks. But it's looking good, isn't it? God is caring for his people. He's providing for them as they prepare the ark. And that's what we see in our last heading. A safe refuge. A safe refuge. The ark comes in now as a safe haven. 
not just for Noah and his seven family members, but the whole of creation. Noah's Ark, if you, again, if you look at the children's stories, it's presented a bit like a, a floating zoo. It's not really a zoo, it's a lifeboat. That's what the Ark is, a lifeboat. A safe place in the flood of God's judgment of the world. God brings the judgment, but he also brings the escape from judgment. The Ark is the rescue that God brings from, from himself, from his own judgment. And if you think that that's a little bit irrelevant to sort of think about it in that way, actually it's been a big deal over the past few years. So I just want us to think for a few seconds. I'm going to show you a video. I want you to think from the story of Noah that we've seen so far, how would you answer this guy? This guy previously has called himself an evangelical. He can buy his books in Christian bookshops. How would you answer him from what we're seeing about the flood? Just have a listen. It's two or three minutes long. Well, it was previously. Ah, there we go. And they put them on display, and there was this one piece. Let me start it again. <laughs> Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and they put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure? And, and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe, or what you say, or what you do, or who you know, or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated, or baptized, or take a class, or converted, or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news. This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught the good news is actually better than that, better than we can ever imagine. The good news is that love wins.
So that was Rob Bell. Uh, that was produced about four or five years ago. And uh, he asked those questions, doesn't he? He doesn't answer them. But he asked them, will billions burn? Well, if you think about the story of the flood, well, yes, millions drown, didn't they, in the flood? Will only a few be saved? Well, yes, only eight were saved in the flood. How do you get part of that few? Well, in Noah's case, you did it by getting on the boat. That's how you did it. What kind of God do you need rescuing from? Well, the answer that we see here is that one who is righteous and holy, one that cares about sin and is grieved by it. So the problem's not with God. The problem is with us. The problem is that the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. So there's no point blaming God for this problem. The problem is with us. So the flood is a picture of the final judgment that is to come. That's how it comes to us in the New Testament. That's why it's so relevant to the question that we just looked at. Will God really do it? Will he bring judgment? Well, yes, he will. He's done it before. I imagine, actually, that Rob Bell sounds a bit like the scoffers in Noah's day. Oh, God won't really do that. God's really not like that. But actually, he will. He did do it. But if the flood is a picture of the final judgment, then the ark is a wonderful picture of Christ. As we go through the Bible, you see not always people that point us to Christ. Sometimes it's things that point us to Christ. Christ is our method of escape. How do you escape? By being in Christ. Just like being in the ark was the only safe place. It's nothing to do with how good or bad you are. It's nothing to do with who your family is. It's whether you're in Christ or you're out of Christ. Being in Christ is a New Testament phrase for being a Christian. Those who are in Christ. And you get in Christ by being joined to him in faith. By faith. And that's really how Noah got on the ark as well. So on the back of your sheet you'll see there Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes through faith. Noah trusted God and did what God said. He got in the ark. We're united to Christ as we get in Christ. So this evening, if you're not in Christ, I want to say get on the boat. Get on the boat. I've put Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. This is picking up on the flood in the New Testament. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. My mum goes on a lot of cruises and apparently every year there are people who miss the boat. They go off on their excursions and they get excited looking round Rome or whatever. And they get back and they find that the boat's left without them. 
don't miss the boat. And I want to say, if you're in Christ this evening, if you're a Christian, stay on the boat. The time leading up to uh, the, the waters coming must have been quite hard. You know, the animals are all there. You're having to do all that stuff. The, the seven days that it talks about at the end, sort of on the boat, but before the flood came. I imagine it would have been quite unpleasant on board to start with hard work. I thought this was supposed to be about rest. Fools to everybody outside. Everyone getting on with normal life, with the fun and frivolity. Would you be tempted to get off if the door was still open in those last seven days? I think I would. It would have been hard. But the Christian life is a lot like those seven days. We're in Christ, aren't we? But the judgment hasn't come yet. It's unpleasant sometimes, hard. I thought this was supposed to be about rest, being a Christian. We're fools to those outside. Everyone getting on with normal life. Are we sometimes tempted to get off the boat? I think we are, if we're honest. Maybe just for a little while, you know. But we must hear Jesus' words again. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when our master will return. We must be ready for his return. Because these words, actually, they weren't addressed to unbelievers. They were addressed to the disciples. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us what these things will be and what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age. This was actually for the disciples to say, stay awake. It's not wake up, it's stay awake. So we need to heed the lesson and not give up. Don't get off the boat or don't get onto another boat. It's tempting, isn't it? They look a bit sturdier sometimes or maybe not. Our own righteousness, our own performance, our good works. There are other boats that we can try and go on. But actually, they're the ones that will fall apart in the judgment to come. Christ is our judge, but he is also our only saviour. And as we've seen, he rescues us from our sin. So we don't rescue ourselves. We go into Christ. He is our saviour. He's the one who is there to rescue. And we see that clearly now. As we see not only the, the, the sinfulness of man, not only God's judgment on man, but Christ as our saviour. The only safe place is Christ. So cling to him and stay on the boat.